You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the Ukrainian president heads to the US. Will his visit save Washington's support? Also ahead. They want to numb your critical thinking. They wanted you to conform. They wanted you to give up on what you're pursuing. And that is the biggest challenge when you are an activist and you are being thrown to jail. One of Hong Kong's most famous democracy campaigners, Nathan Law, will give his reaction to this weekend's local elections in the city. Plus, Poland's right-wing government loses power after eight years in office, paving the way for the former Prime Minister, Donald Tusk, to return to office. Plus... I'm Alexei Korolev, Monocle's Vienna correspondent, with the latest in Austria's so-called Air Schengen offer. We'll talk about the Viennese decision to roll back on a ban on Bulgaria and Romania's accession to the border-free Schengen area, but there are conditions attached. And Swarovski opens a new flagship store on Fifth Avenue. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. Just a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The UN General Assembly is to vote on an immediate ceasefire in Gaza just days after a similar resolution proposed in the UN Security Council was vetoed by the US. Israel has denied it intends to push Palestinians from Gaza and into Egypt as international relief agencies say hunger is spreading among the civilian population. And the Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny has reportedly vanished from the Russian prison system. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has arrived in Washington in what's been viewed as a last-ditched attempt to secure a multi-billion dollar package of US military aid. President Biden's plan has faced strong resistance from Republicans who argue US support for Ukraine should not be open-ended. The deal is deadlocked in Congress and there are fears in Kyiv that support for Ukraine in the war against Russia may be waning. Well, I'm joined now by Maria Zolkina, who's a research fellow at LSE and the head of regional security and conflict studies at the Democratic Initiatives Foundation, a Ukrainian think tank. A very good morning to you, Maria. Good morning. I think if we just need to do this direct comparison with the, the you know, the last big visit last year that uh, Zelensky made to, to to Washington, and it was you know, blue and yellow flags everywhere, open arms everywhere. He was the undisputed sort of hero of the hour. That's changed somewhat, hasn't it? Yes, it has changed, absolutely. But uh, I wouldn't uh, say that it has changed in terms that Ukraine has completely lost bipartisan support from both Democrats and Republicans. But Ukraine, unfortunately, became trapped uh, between uh, like two uh, two polars of, of their inner domestic struggle uh, on the eve of presidential campaign. And Republicans are playing not only with Ukrainian aid, but also with the aid to Taiwan or Israel, everything actually which was put into the whole package of $110 billion. 
Exactly, because they have a very specific question for them about the border and they are playing and there is a part of populism, a part of rationality altogether. So it's not about Ukraine, but unfortunately Ukraine is suffering because we became like a hostage uh, in this case of this kind of domestic struggle and electoral uh, campaign, which is uh, about to start or actually has started already de facto. Meanwhile, Ukraine's needs haven't changed. If anything, Ukraine needs help more than anything because a long-awaited counteroffensive did not break through. Russia is rebuilding its military and this war is just about to enter, what, its third year? Absolutely. And uh, this is a big challenge, actually, because uh, from Ukrainian point of view, who is uh, actually benefiting now from the stalled negotiations about the further supporting Ukraine in U.S. is actually Russia, who see that Ukraine is dependent on uh, budget and military support from U.S. as the main donor. Uh, Russia is uh, at the same time strengthening its ties with with China and indirectly even without, you know, being hided a lot. Uh, China is uh, supporting Russia's military capacities right now, but uh, uh, Ukraine really needs that. And and actually, this is really a challenge because in 2024, uh, U.S. seems to be and Biden administration seems to continue this kind of very accurate and dozen support for Ukraine. And even with this, they have a struggle and they ha- they're struggling now. Uh, while Ukraine see that the level of support shouldn't be decreased at um, uh, any cost. So this is not the case to decrease the support for 2024. Otherwise, we would be put in a condition uh, of uh, really um, protracted, let's say, ceasefire, uh, which will be not a ceasefire, but which will be a short pause actually used by Russia just to... uh, uh, refuel their their military force and then uh, attack again when Ukraine will not be enforced to to respond to that and to repel the attack. That's the main risk now. Indeed, and the US defence level of assistance to Ukraine is crucial. Is it, sorry, crucial? It's crucial, yes. Yes, it's absolutely crucial and uh, it's crucial not just because um, uh, U.S. is the main military donor for Ukraine, but because uh, U.S. is sending a budget and financial support together with other donors to Ukraine. But the main argument, I think, for Ukrainian president right now, when he will speak to domestic public and to decision makers in U.S. among Republicans especially, uh, the main argument will be that absolute majority of um, alleged um, costs uh, and um, money is expected to to be sent to Ukraine among this uh, in this package. They're going to stay in U.S. Actually, this is for U.S. military. Uh, a lot of them are going to U.S. military enterprises, uh, which are increasing the number of um, military stuff they are pro- they are pro- they are producing right now or will be producing in 2024, 2025. So this is basically not directly to send somewhere else and just uh, to deprive U.S. budget of these 60 billion out of this 110. 
uh, because 60 is exa exactly for Ukraine. Uh, and this is the main argument here. So, and so the, the second argument will be here that yes, the support is crucial because this is not just about 2024. And Republicans, even if they are successful in presidential elections, they would have this exactly, exactly the same problem with, with Russian and Ukrainian war in 2025. But at that moment, both Ukraine and US as our partners will be in much worse condition if this aid is not continued now. In addition to this, looking at the $60 billion aid package, which is stuck in Congress with a minority of lawmakers sceptical of sending further funds, is there a fear that there is a permanent change in position here in the United States with regards to its ability and indeed willingness to send aid to Ukraine? It's actually not about exactly the willingness to send aid to Ukraine. This is about the priorities of uh, both both camps uh, in the framework of their domestic campaign. So this is really unfavorable condition for courageous decision about foreign policy now, not only for Republicans, which will be sending some of them like Trump, which will be sending very controversial messages like he already did about that he could possibly stop the war in one day, which is absolutely ridiculous and populist. Uh, and, but the President Biden also uh, is sticking to the strategy not to not to make any sharp movements. Uh, and just to continue what was um, picked as a strategy for uh, like to send uh, limited limited amount of aid to Ukraine now you raise it, the point about Zelensky's ability to get this job done when he's in Washington I mean his powers of persuasion are well known and we have seen pictures of him in various meetings with various senior figures in the Biden administration obviously pushing very very hard for to, to, to try to get the, the US to step up. The fact that those powers of persuasion are so famous, do you think they will work this time? I think that the compromise between Republicans and Democrats will work, actually, because just the power of persuasion from Ukrainian side, it is not enough in this particular situation, because this is more about political discussion between these two camps rather than about Ukraine. Yes, of course, publicity, visibility of, of uh, Ukrainian messages, especially if it, they are done, they are given by, by the President Zelensky right now, in person in Washington, they will have their impact. But we think that the main the, the, the main cause for hopefully positive resolution of this problem will be actually a political compromise. And there are signs that uh, Biden administration is considering to have a compromise on the issue with border just to deprive uh, radical wing of Republicans of that argument with uh, the lack of support to the border initiatives between Mexico and, and US. And finally, the international community is joining in with this push. There was a report late last night that there were a hundred senior European lawmakers are, are sending a joint letter to Congress to plead to unlock further military aid to Ukraine. Um, I think France, Germany, Italy, Poland and Ireland are, are, are genuinely here displaying concern about the, the amount of continued support the United States can send? Because in the European Union, among European states, there is a fear that um, being um, dragged into domestic political campaign, US will not fulfill the role of political leader of pro-Ukrainian international coalition of democratic states supporting Ukraine in this war. And 
And unfortunately, actually, none of the biggest partners of Ukraine and the continental Europe is ready to uh, replace U.S. Uh, at this uh, role, with this role, uh, even temporarily. That's why they are ready to support, they are ready to send the money from their budgets, uh, like Germany is increasing military production, for instance, for the several years uh, significantly. But at the same time, they want U.S. to, to stay at the position of a leader. Uh, and uh, I hope that altogether all this work will, will have its effect. And not only from continental Europe, but we know that the work uh, with Republicans specifically was started by, uh, by, by British politicians already. Uh, namely, there was a delegation of conservatives uh, to talk to Republicans, to talk to congressmen about uh, necessity to support Ukraine further. Maria Zolkina, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You with The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Fifteen twelve in Hong Kong, 7.12am here in London. Now, the last time council elections were held in Hong Kong in 2019, seven out of ten people took part and the vote delivered a landslide victory for the democratic camp. Well, that was during Hong Kong's mass pro-democracy protests. Four years later, this weekend's vote was dubbed the Patriots' only district election and fewer than three in ten Hong Kongers cast their ballot. Well, I'm joined now by Nathan Law, a pro-democracy activist from Hong Kong and the author of Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. Back in 2016, Nathan became the youngest representative elected to the Legislative Council of Hong Kong and one of its last Democrats. He was disqualified later and then sentenced to eight months in prison for his role in leading the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests. Nathan now lives in exile here in the United Kingdom. Kingdom. And I'm delighted to say he joins us now on Monocle Radio. A very good morning to you, Nathan. Thank you for coming on. Good morning, Radio. Emma. Um, good to have you. So just talk a little bit about this weekend. This weekend, I mean, there was a record low turnout for this for this election yeah. talk, called the Patriots Only election. Did that surprise you in any way? Well, it is definitely not surprising because after the overhaul of the whole election uh, system and electoral methods, um, basically, the result uh, of having the historically low turnout is because people who support democracy boycotting the election because there's only um, Beijing-approved candidates that can run in the election. And everyone in Hong Kong and also the international community consider it as an undemocratic election so that it is being boycotted. And um, the result is there's only people who are supporting Beijing, voting it, which is a minority in the society, and then you've got the lowest turnout. The turnout was seen by some, some as, a, as a test of the government's ability to demonstrate public support for the, 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 the new political order imposed by Xi Jinping. Um, what does this historically low turnout now suggest? The government has spent... Um, well, probably the largest amount of money to promote the election if you compare to the previous ones. And the result is stocking. They, they, they have not got any new votes coming in because if you only 
um, consider the votes as the votes that Beijing can mobilize. Um, it's been quite stagnated for the past years. If you compare it to the 2021 Legislative Council election and the 2019 District Council election, um, only for the proportion that Beijing got. Um, so I, I think for Beijing, this is definitely a disappointing result. And um, that there's a, a big rethink for them because they've been saying that Hong Kong has stepped into a vase of prosperity. But in fact, like the property market, the stock market are free falling. And also the political support of the government is not increasing. So that there will be a rethinking of Beijing and, and of um, the Hong Kong government. And what kind of rethink do you anticipate will will, will happen? For now, Beijing seems to um, to soften its tone, to, um, to to decrease the risk of geopolitical conflict with the US and hope to boost its economy with Europe. So um, will that kind of rethinking and softening tone apply to Hong Kong? I think that's a big question. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we, we can see that the priority of the policy in Hong Kong is to maintain political stability, which means that uh, quashing dissidents, limiting freedom, rather than boosting economy. So there's a big concern, uh, even though we've seen a, a really terrible economic, economic performance of Hong Kong for the past year, whether Beijing would consider recalibrating its political approach in order to safeguard its economy, that's also a, a big concern of Hong Kong people. And indeed, if you only have Beijing-approved candidates standing in the elections, regardless as to how low the turnout is, it does um, certainly shape Hong Kong in a way which is, which is, you know, in 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 Beijing's eyes. And what does that mean for any pro-democracy movement and civil society rights groups? Since the implementation of the national security law in twenty twenty, it's quite obvious that that is no meaningful. There's no room for meaningful participation in all the elections in Hong Kong because they've got this vetting system and only Beijing approved candidates can run. So um, the implication of this uh, district council election to the democratic movement is not that significant because we all know um, how the result would be. But I think the stagnation of Beijing support is quite meaningful because um, if you look at the vote, they, they've got a million. 200,000 votes, which is um, not that much if you compare to the whole voting block of Hong Kong people. And if Beijing, well, basically they have exhausted all the means to get support, but at the end they, they, they didn't get any. It really means that Hong Kong people actually still have their faith, have their support to the democratic movement, but there's just no means to express that. And the one of them is to boycotting the system to show that they're actually disapproving the government. So it's an, an absence of participation which sends a message to Beijing. What, what are you hearing from the people who you are still talking to in Hong Kong about how, if you are part of a civil rights group or you are trying to have your voice heard, that how life is for you? A lot of them who are living in Hong Kong who still want to make a point their reaction to it or their actions to express discontent has been quite passive. Like um, boycotting the results, well, even mocking it, having sarcastic comments. These are really common way to to 
to try to express yourself in these very tight, tight political um, environment. So that that's one of the things that they do. Um, and we heard from you a little bit earlier on when we were beginning this program, saying that the approach is to numb critical thinking and wanting people to to to, for, to conform and want wanting people to give up on what they are pursuing in terms of creating a voice that can be heard. I mean, it must be very frustrating for those left in Hong Kong trying to circumvent such a strong um, strong influence. Yes, definitely um, suffocating for them. Uh, they are very worried if they start to talk about politics, whether they would get into trouble. And I've heard a lot of cases where people... Um, well, friends, they wanted to talk about social affairs. They are told not to do it in public space and then to talk it in private. So that there's a big overwhelming worries of Hong Kong people, no matter it is for, well, really political stuff, for example, like elections or just Monday day-to-day stuff that they are no longer allowed to express their opinion and they are worried for repercussion because you just don't know where the lines have been drawn and whether you will step into the territory of violating national security law, which is vaguely defined and at the mercy of the government. Um, finally, Nathan, you're no longer in Hong Kong, and it's recently emerged that um, one of your co-pro-democracy campaigners, Agnes Chow, fled to Canada and has said she's not going back to Hong Kong. Where does that leave you and your movement as it as it becomes a sort of an increasingly fragmented group across the world and 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 the support that you can still offer to those in Hong Kong? If we look at um, where are these prominent activists, we, we, we can see that there are a big portion of them stay in jail and then there are many of them who fled and then to live a life of exile in, um, in the US, in the UK, in Canada, etc. And there's a well, a portion of them still stay in Hong Kong, but maintain a very low profile of life. So um, in, in this era of big political persecution, everyone has their choice. Um, most importantly is they've made their choice and whether it they, they this choice would allow them to continue their advocacy work. I think this is um, what matters. So Agnes is out and then she's been doing a lot of interviews, still speaking up for Hong Kong. I think this is a good thing, and I'm really glad that, um, like, to her mental health and physical health, that she managed to have a room to breathe and then to have a safe environment to live. Nathan Law, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. And Nathan's book, Freedom, is available in bookshops now. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Still to come. I'm David Phelan, and I'll be talking about a new home security system called EARS, whether you should be worried about name-dropping on your iPhone, and the importance of UFOS recovery shoes. Monocle's gadget man David Phelan will join me in the studio with the latest tech news. Stay with us. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Ed Stocker is Monocle's Europe Europe at-large editor. joins me now from Milan. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. It's a mantle, isn't it? That it's, title. It's, uh, <laughs> nice, nice name there. Um, how is Milan this morning? What's what's happening? Well, there's a lot happening actually. We're going to do a roundup of newspapers, aren't we? And um, well, we, we'll come on to Italy in a bit, but maybe we'll uh, 
start in France if that works for you, Emma. There is a big problem for Emmanuel Macron, isn't there, in his immigration policy, and people are suggesting that this could actually bring down parts of the government. Well, indeed, the, the uh, Interior Minister, Damarnin, did offer uh, to resign, but that was rejected. This is, of course, uh, regarding uh, Macro's, if you like, signature uh, immigration bill. Uh, he uh, was re-elected on, on the back of this sort of, you know, we've seen slightly this across Europe, uh, uh, governments and leaders shifting to the right on things like immigration. And, and Macro sort of promised, I guess, to appease uh, the right uh, uh, electorate um, promised to sort of strike more of a law and order uh, macro. So this immigration bill was actually rejected on Monday evening without debate in the lower house uh, in France. That's the first time that's happened since 1998. It's, it's a big deal, the fact that it wasn't even debated. And I think the problem with this immigration bill uh, is that it, it sort of, Yes, it's trying to get a little bit tougher, but it, at the same time, there's a lot of it that does try uh, and tread uh, a middle ground. And as a result, it's sort of not, it's angered the left and it's angered the right. So he's managed to sort of alienate everyone. Um, there are tougher things like promising to expel uh, migrants who've been sentenced to prison sentences of five years or more. It's more difficult for family members uh, to join migrants. But at the same time, there are other uh, proposals like uh, uh, making it easier to sort of uh, bring uh, temporary workers or people in understaffed sectors of the economy, uh, bring them into the uh, the regular economy, as it were. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tricky situation situation to know uh, where the government goes from here. Don't forget that it doesn't have a majority. It lost that in June of 2022, which of course makes passing uh, bills like this a a lot harder, Emma. Indeed. I mean, Macron's in his second term. So in theory, he can press ahead with the reforms that he needs. But as you say, he lost his parliamentary majority last year, which means that trying to get things through, I mean, it's an astonishing sort of wall of opposition that he faced with this thing, didn't he? Because the far right said no, the far left said no, everybody said no. Exactly. And like I said before, the fact that, you know, they weren't even prepared to have a debate on it is the thing that's a bitter pill to swallow. Um, This can continue to the Senate, although at some point it's going to have to come back to the lower house. So that may not achieve anything. What seems likely is that there's this sort of process when it can go to a mixed committee, which uh, includes members of the upper and lower house, where they try and find a compromise. That seems uh, the most likely recourse at the moment. Of course, the government could choose to withdraw the bill altogether, but it seems given how important it seems to be um, and given uh, statements that ministers have been giving to the press, it seems highly unlikely that will happen. So it looks like it will be, like I say, this mixed committee that will try somehow to find a compromise uh, with these very divided left and right factions that, that at the moment aren't happy. Uh, It seems to be a portrait of uh, left and right right factions being uh, divided and not happy right across parts of the big players in Europe, doesn't it? I mean, we'll we'll come to have a look at what's happening in Spain in a moment. But you mentioned that we were going to go to Italy and there are big problems when it comes to the gender pay gap. gap. And this is also um, several governments trying to get this done and failing. Well, this is particularly bad in Italy, Emma. Um, and, And, you know, President 
uh, Prime Minister, rather, sorry, uh, Giorgia Maloney, has said in the past, uh, she is, of course, Italy's first female uh, Prime Minister, but she said in the past that, that women are an untapped resource in Italy. And, and that's certainly true, although at the same time, we don't really see a, a load of measures, including in the recent budget, that are, that are going to majorly uh, address this problem. And it is huge. Um, you know, Italy is particularly bad. It has the lowest female occupation rate in the EU, uh, which is which is quite staggering. And and basically, they've been uh, there's been a recent uh, study released that which is why it's sort of making headlines again in Italy, showing uh, that this this uh, gender gap between uh, men and women is actually showing no signs of being. Uh, resolved and is actually deepening. And there have been a load of measures that have been attempted, um, you know, uh, uh, from successive governments, uh, uh, Gentiloni, Conte, Draghi, the list goes on of of, of prime ministers uh, who've tried to solve this, including incentives for companies to hire, etc., etc. But it's not happening. You know, uh, there's an editorial in La Repubblica that says that women uh, continue to to be penalised and excluded from the jobs market and that there's a figure that says 40.9 percent uh, of uh, of women were hired for for positions in 2022 which is still bad obviously it's a long way from the 50 50 parity but uh, another issue is that when these women are getting hired they're often in fixed contracts or forced into temporary work so it's on a different uh, playing field if you would like uh, to the men and and this is a serious problem Ed, um, we're slightly running out of time here, but we mentioned that we were going to go to Spain and we have a war of words between the far right and the third term Prime Minister left wing Pedro Sanchez. I'll keep it brief then. Um, yes, <laughs> exactly. Santa Santiago, tongue twister there, Abascal, the far right leader of Vox, uh, basically making a statement saying that there'll be a moment when Spanish people will want to hang him uh, from his feet, him being uh, the Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, who's recently come back for his third term. Uh, pretty harsh statements that other parts of the right in Spain have looked to distance themselves from. Abascal was in Argentina uh, for the of Javier Millet, of course, the ultra-liberalist leader there. He was attending his inauguration, made these statements, causing uh, a few problems in Spain, which, of course, is very polarised between left and right after uh, that bitter attempt to find a new government following the election there, Emma. Was that quick enough? That was absolutely spot on. Ed Stocker, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. The time here is 7.30am. We've got lots to pack into the next half hour. But first, let's have a look at the latest headlines. The UN General Assembly is to vote on an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It comes days after a similar resolution proposed in the UN Security Council was vetoed by the US. Since the Israel-Hamas war began, the Security Council has failed six times to adopt a resolution demanding a ceasefire because of disagreement among its 15 members. Meanwhile, Israel has denied it intends to push Palestinians from Gaza and into Egypt as international relief agencies say hunger is spreading among the the civilian population. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says he fears a mass displacement into Egypt. Meanwhile, the Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant says Israel has no intention of staying permanently in the Gaza Strip. 
The Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny has reportedly vanished from the Russian prison system. Mr Navalny has been removed from the penal colony where he's been in prison since the middle of last year. Mr Navalny's supporters have been preparing for his transfer to a so-called special regime colony, the harshest grade in Russia's prison system. And there's been a furious reaction from some nations after a draft COP28 deal removed language suggesting that fossil fuels could be phased out. All 198 countries at the summit must agree or there is no deal. A representative for the European Union called the draft unacceptable and has said the bloc could walk away. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We will fix everything. That was the ambitious promise of Donald Tusk after winning a parliamentary vote to become Poland's Prime Minister once again yesterday. Mr Tusk thanked Poles and said his new government will right the wrongs so that everyone can feel at home. There was a remarkable change in the political direction of the country yesterday. Their right-wing government has been in power for eight years and it didn't go quietly. Joining me now from Warsaw is Michal Baranowski, Regional Director of Poland at the German Marshall Fund. Good morning, Michal. Good morning. So huge changes in Polish politics yesterday and and the last-ditched attempt by the right-wing Law and Justice Party to remain office didn't go well and they didn't go quietly, did they? Uh, no, not at all. Um, this is this has been actually a two-month uh, ordeal after the victorious um, election of October 15th. It's only going to be today when the Prime Minister... Donald Tusk will be able to finally uh, form the government, give his expose, and he will be sworn in tomorrow. It's it is a huge change, as you said. It by pretty much all the observers on all sides of the political spectrum see this uh, this date yesterday as another historical date because this the this is the end of the eight years of law and justice rule that has. Well, that has put Poland in where Poland is right now when with relations with the EU, with relations with many of our other European partners and allies. And as you said, this is an opportunity to turn things around both domestically and internationally. And the, the Law and Justice Party leader Yaroslav uh, Kaczynski didn't, um, he threw an insult at Tusk as he left the room yesterday, didn't he? I think he said, I don't know who your grandfathers were, but I know one thing, you are a German agent, just a German agent. I mean, it is a throwaway, ins- you know, horrible insult, but it ex- it sort of exposes just how deeply divided and bitter Poland's politics is. Uh, Polish politics is indeed very divided, but that intervention uh, was done was done also outside of any protocol, parliamentary protocol. It was after Donald Tusk uh, thank uh, both his coalition partners and the people of Poland for voting on October uh, 15th. And he then talked about his grandfathers who have been accused of being somehow connected to to Germany when in fact they were um, Poles living in, in the city of Gdańsk. This is this also show potential. Hopefully it will, will not go this way, but it's hard to imagine how we would not. The potential better atmosphere and the bitter fight that we will see between the now opposition and the ruling uh, coalition. So 
So, yes, it does not bode well for reconciliation in Polish uh, politics and Polish society that is also very divided. Looking forward now, we have a new Prime Minister, Donald Tusk, new in, well, old, back in office, but he has a new right. future to build. And, and it is today, isn't it, when he presents his government and his government's programme. What do we know about it? Well, we know all the personalities. Um, and as you said, he's, he is back after also his uh, years in Brussels as the president of European uh, Council. So he comes also with international experience that will one of the key uh, goals for the new government to was will be to bring Poland back to the heart of Europe, as as the, as the opposition, as the current uh, coalition is talking about it, but more uh, in more um, real terms to unlock the recovery funds that have been stopped by because of the rule of law transgression of the previous government. So we know the key priorities and we know all the personalities. As you said, they will be presented actually just later on uh, this morning and then uh, president who is currently traveling will be back tomorrow to uh, to officially swear in the, the new government and Tusk will go to his first international meetings, a key critical EU summit uh, this Thursday and Friday. Let's talk briefly about Andrzej Duda, the, the, the president. Mm-hmm. He is he was appointed by the Law and Justice uh, Party and by all accounts has, has been you know playing along with the, the Law and Justice's stalling tactics. Yes. Now, you, you mentioned that he's he's out of the country. He's in Switzerland, isn't he? And he's he needs to be in Warsaw. He needs to be physically present when there is a government changeover. Um, is there any sign that he might delay this? Because he is still associated with the Law and Justice Party, isn't he? Um, yes, he is. There is no question where uh, where the political loyalties of President Duda's uh, lay. He very he's very much openly uh, talks about his affiliation with with law and justice, <clears throat> and also the fact that we you know the the election has taken place almost two months ago. Um, the new government has lost those two months. It's it's the longest. A period of time that uh, that it took to ever uh, form uh, the government, and it was because because President Duda asked former Prime Minister Morawiecki to 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 take on this role, even though it was clear that uh, he's not going to form form the government. But yes, this is you know he's uh, he has to be in the in in Poland, and that means that the new government will be sworn in on December 13th. Now, for most of the listeners, this is just like another day, but there is a symbolic, uh, this is a very difficult and symbolic date for Poland. And I, it's hard not to see this as a, as a something that was forced on the new, on the new government, because this is the anniversary of uh, the martial law in 1981. Um, and, and that's a, pretty terrible date honestly to have as the beginning of a of a government but that's that will have to be the case because the next day is the European Council where uh, Prime Minister Tusk will have to go to represent Poland in this uh, in this key uh, council meeting. Because, key summit. because finally Poland now under Donald Tusk is able to to place 
Poland right at the heart of EU decision-making, doesn't he? I mean, he is able to help now with the green transition. He can try to unlock these billions of euros uh, which have been frozen uh, because of the the law and justice's uh, party's clamp down on freedom of speech. Um, But also, Ukraine's president has said, you know, Mm -hmm. the future lies in unity. This, This now could have much wider repercussions across the European Union, couldn't it? Yes, there are a number of areas in which uh, the new government will open up new opportunities when it comes to Poland's place in Europe. And you started uh, correctly very much with the words of of President Zelensky, because one of the most fraught uh, and surprisingly, perhaps for many listeners, relationship that the Polish, uh, the Poland had over the last few months was with Ukraine. Uh, There is a there, ha- there has been emotional outbursts over the last months, but also very, very real uh, blockage of uh, Polish-Ukrainian border by by Polish drivers that the previous go- government has not done um, much to unlock. So, um, so the new government uh, with the summit will be, you know, aiming to reset relations with Ukraine, build up relations also with Germany that many of you I'm sure know that has been very much strained but more importantly you really bring the you know the heft of Poland uh, back to the to the to the heart of Europe and also in in a European decision making and this this first council will be pretty much the first show of a prime minister coming back with I believe about 11 years of sitting in the council in the previous in the previous uh, years when he was prime minister and the president of the European Council. Michal Baranowski, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Warsaw. You're listening to Monocle Radio. a.m. in Bucharest, 7.40 a.m. here in London. Now, Austria says it's considering relaxing its block of the expansion of the EU's Schengen area to include Bulgaria and Romania. The Schengen area guarantees free movement of up to 400 million citizens across Europe without the need for passport control. But Austria's decision could not be without conditions. Alexei Koryolov is Monocle's Vienna correspondent. A very good morning to you, Alexei. Morning, Emma. So just explain to us briefly the background on this one. This this block on uh, Bulgaria and Romania, which Austria has maintained, is because of what one one is assuming it's illegal migration. Exactly, yeah, right. This is what Austria has been saying um, for years now. I mean, of course, there was this meeting almost exactly a year ago where, where Romania and Bulgaria were hoping to get the go-ahead to join Schengen. And then Austria very surprisingly blocked that. Uh, but what people forget, actually, is that it wasn't only Austria, it, it's the Netherlands as well. But the Netherlands uh, were only opposed to, to Bulgaria joining Schengen. Um, and, and Austria sort of opposed Romania and Bulgaria, both of them. So now, um, as you say, Austria has uh, said, uh, specifically Austria's interior minister has said, you know, he's ready to relent, he's ready to relax the veto. Um, and of course, the form that he's suggesting for this is is the so-called air Schengen. So Austria is, is ready to relax its veto, but only on plane travel. And of course, in exchange for, for a few conditions that it, it has laid out in a letter to the European Commission. And it is assuming that the the, the air travel is it, the, that condition is imposed simply because it is much much easier to control and know who is crossing borders. Exactly, exactly right. Yes, um, and of course, um, you know, this has uh, 
Romania and Bulgaria are obviously, you know, rejoicing at this point. Uh, but of course, this idea of 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 just relaxing the um, air travel that has um, created some um, sort of anger in Bulgaria, especially, you know, B Bulgarian politicians, Bulgarian prime minister saying, you know, we're happy, of course, with this uh, with this development, but. You know, we're not happy with Austria um, um, having all these conditions and and um, applying applying all this pressure. But interestingly, actually, this idea of Air Schengen um, it has a precedent in Austria's own uh, past. When Austria joined Schengen in 1997, one of the first countries to do so, Germany was not happy with with Austria's border controls at the time and France as well, and so they imposed the same sort of conditions in Austria. Um, and 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 first, um, so it, it was it generally went the same way. Um, so Austria first sort of joined Schengen through air travel, and then a year or two later, um, land borders as well. So you know there is that precedent as well. Um, the European Commission has, for a very long time, repeatedly and strenuously said that Romania and Bulgaria should become members of Schengen. Um, who do you think is going to be proved right here, Austria or the EU Commission? Obviously, the EU Commission, and you know there is there is a great um, there is a great rift about this as well in Austria inside Austria. You know, famously, um, Austrian President uh, Alexander van der Bellen, he immediately a year ago when when Austria first uh, put down its veto, he immediately said, you know, this is Austria is going to regret this, you know, because this is not the way forward, um, and you know, Romania and Bulgaria meet all the criteria, and Austria shouldn't be doing this. And I think obviously, yeah, Van der Bellen and the EU Commission will be will be proven right um, in this. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that Austria has teamed up with the Netherlands to become the you know the the, the final roadblocks in this one. Uh, the Netherlands political climate has just changed dramatically with the uh, arrival of Wilders in the in the Prime Minister's seat. I mean, does that change things for for Austria, and does it pose more problems to the European Union? Well, it could potentially, but you know, this depends on 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 sort of how fast they do this. Uh, because of course, Mark Rutte, the, the Dutch Prime Minister, is still incumbent; is still there, so he can make this take this decision. And if um, Austria and the Netherlands move quickly on this, then you know, this could be resolved by the end of the year. Alexei Korolev in Vienna. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to the Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Time now to talk uh, technology. Let's have a roundup with Monocle's tech correspondent, David David Phelan, joined to be here in the studio. Good morning, David. Good morning. Now, normally you bring in something that that we can recognise. Um, it's it's you know normally looks like a phone or something like that. You've brought in something that looks like a jewellery box, but I suspect oh. I suspect it has 
it does more than hold precious things or what does it do David? it does Tell less than it hold precious oh. things except metaphorically okay uh, this is called ears spelt e-a-r-z-z e-a-r-z right okay well I've, it's lost me already okay thank you but let's not gosh it's heavy it's a, a home security device um one of the things that people get concerned about about home security cameras is that they do their job very well. They can see you. So people feel that there's a privacy issue. So ears is... It works for home security, but it does it just through audio. So it listens out for not for words. It doesn't record any words. It just takes a, a note of whether there's a baby crying, a dog barking, a piece of window smashing, something like that. And as soon as it hears any of those things, which it is trained by artificial intelligence to do, uh, to recognize rather, it will then um, send you a notification on your phone. Okay. Um, it looks very smart and very lovely, but these devices have been around for quite a long time. I remember having enormous fun uh, talking to my parents when they babysit my then baby son, and we didn't tell them that we had communication um, <laughs> with them. When, when we could see her going in to pick up a slumbering child and then would just pretend to be God, basically, and talk at her. Nearly killed them several times. Um, but you know, the, the fun you can have with, with, with home security is endless. But, but the, 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 there are a few issues with this one. A, if it's purely audio, if someone does break in, identification is going to be a bit of a problem. But, I mean, where, where does this lie in the, in the grander scheme of, of security and surveillance? I think it's just, it's determined to satisfy as many privacy concerns as possible by, by doing it. And also, the, the way the microphone works is that you can, it can cover more than one room. So you don't, you can have several of these, uh, but you don't need that many to, to cover your entire house. And the idea is that, it, as I say, there's no uh, issue with with um with with vision i guess you could have an external camera or somewhere this would be perfect for the bedroom if you you wanted to be uh, sure that nothing was going to ever see you i honestly i don't know why you're laughing and uh... but what if you're out and you hear something in the bedroom that's not just security david <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, I, 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 yes, I hear what you're saying. Suspicious but... minds. <laughs> <laughs> God help us! This is a tiny little thing, isn't it? But my God, the potential for mischief is enormous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's pretty clever. It can recognise sounds very distinctly, so that uh, there may be certain things that you wouldn't get noticed. I don't know about. how they program the algorithm on that one. <laughs> Right, are you getting one for the for the feeling household? I, I like it. I think it's really good, yeah. It's pretty. Okay, right, well, Christmas. Um, okay, now here we go. It's other stuff that we need to know about. Um, there's a thing called name drop. Yes. What's that? Well, it's something we've all done from time to time, but it's now a feature on the iPhone. If you want to share your contact with someone, it's it's always a faff. You either type your number into their phone or you, you have to find the card and send it by airdrop. Now with name drop, all you do is you put your iPhone near to another person's and it, this rather marvellous animation shows up um, and you can just, with one tap, transfer your context now uh in midwest um, actually in pennsylvania last week uh, a, f a, a police department got hold of this and said this is terribly dangerous uh you can if you just you're sitting near someone and your contacts are being 
transfer. Harvested. This is all nonsense. Okay. Um, it, Apple is so obsessed with privacy uh, in every way that y you have to do certain things and it controls what you share, whether it's your, uh, your phone number, your email address or whatever, but it is incredibly simple. And as of yesterday, you can now use the same mechanism to share uh, movie tickets or um, uh, uh, boarding passes. This so is a little, this is just like airdrop. It is, it's exactly that. It's a version of AirDrop. Okay. And why is it different from AirDrop? Well, just because it's got contact in it. Uh, it, it is a specific uh, kind of thing. And also, you don't have to activate it in the same way as you do with AirDrop. It just automatically does it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good sign that Apple is, is um, sort of aware of the everyday irritations that its exactly. phone brings. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, how, how much is Apple, you know, attuned to this kind of stuff? Because, because we, you know, it, it does... The, the deliberate, not the deliberate, but the sort of like the secondary irritations of operating technology daily um, are something that sometimes you, you think that the big companies bypass. No, yes, exactly. I think Apple's very good at it. Uh, on the Mac, it's very good if you, you know, when you're looking for where the cursor is on your screen, if you wiggle the mouse, which is a very natural thing to do, the, the cursor grows until you cannot miss it on, on, on screen. <laughs> so Apple is always thinking about these things that literally no one else thinks of. OK, thank you. Uh, feet. We don't normally talk about feet in tech, but the, ladies and gentlemen, David is reaching down. Yes, I'm slightly disrobing. Don't worry, it is just my <laughs> shoe to show you. This is a Recovery I don't know shoe. what you brought in today. The thing that can hear you do things in the bedroom and no taking his clothes off. In, in the UK at the moment, it's only 10 to 8 in the morning. I don't know where this is going. Help us, David. This is a brand called Ufos. Based Ufos. in Exactly. Okay. In, based in Boston. Right. And um, the, 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 it's set up by people who've been working in uh, shoe care and, and, and making shoes for a long time. But they've created this unique foam. And uh, it, honestly, these don't smell. I'm going to pass it to you. This is... You um, handed a shoe now. Uh, did you uh, walk in in these? I did, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, and uh, the... the foam is incredibly soft but it's not like performance shoes that spring you back up they are, have a deliberate dampening effect and recovery shoes are for if you've had, had an injury or if you have plantar fasciitis something like that if you wear those and i am testament to this they are so incredibly comfortable and they sort you out how love oh one does love a pair of shoes that sorts one out and, <laughs> and it makes me think slightly of birkenstock that birkenstock started as a not necessarily as a recovery shoe but as a posture shoe in the setting of that and it is sure. absolutely dominated the market of sort of well-being footwear yes oh it's not quite got there on trainers do we think that ufos might nip in behind birkenstock and say actually we've we've got this sorted yeah i think so. i think that's the the aim and as well as uh, this that looks like a, a regular lace-up trainer you can also get sliders and sandals and uh uh, clogs uh, and slippers and uh, one way or another and Ufos has been going for a few years and it's suddenly really growing, mostly through word of mouth. These were recommended to me when I had a problem with my foot and I was very sceptical and uh, they, they've been amazing. Um, the design is what, do we like the way that they are designed? Because this is always the challenge, that comfort and style and comfort don't necessarily, they're not a very good e easy bedfellows. Uh, that's true, and I think uh, I think that is the, the Ufos is is reaching towards the style element, the function they've certainly got, and the and the form, but the the, the look is improving uh, each with each generation. So, practically speaking, price point distribution, where can we get them, and how much would we do we have to pay if we're sure. thinking of stocking? 
Stella for oh, Christmas. Ufos.com uh, or, or for ufos.co.uk. Uh, th- this particular pair is £130, but uh, if you're just for wearing them around the home, the sliders cost £50, $50 in the US. Fantastic, David Phelan, bringing things in to the Globalist on Monocle Radio. Great to see you. Thank you. Finally, Austria's jewellery giant Swarovski has opened its newest flagship on New York's 5th Avenue and 54th Street. The two-storey shop is designed by Swarovski's creative director, Giovanni Engelbert, who wanted the space to reflect the brand's 128-year heritage. I'm joined now from Paris by Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and Future of Clothes. Very good morning to you, Dana. Good morning, good morning. So this is, um, a, this is a long time now since Swarovski has been reinventing itself as a, as a majorly cool brand. Um, does its arrival on Fifth Avenue just cement this? Absolutely. First of all, this is the first, this is the largest flagship store in North America, and it's the first on Fifth Avenue in New York City. It's, it's a big deal. And it's a big store. It's 1,300 square meters, so, you know, or 14,400 square feet. So it's, you know, it's it's got a serious present, two stories. And when you walk in, it's like you're, you've walked into a, a jewelry box. It's pink, like candy pink and emerald green and and gold and quilted and velvety and shimmery. Of course, lots of shimmer. There's crystal frames and crystal doorknobs and crystal all over the place. So, yeah, it's supposed to kick it off, but not be like a stodgy old, you know, old school Fifth Avenue jewelry brand, but something very hip and very fun and very young for a 128-year-old company. Indeed. Um, the, the, what you described sounds incredibly modern, but the, as we mentioned a moment ago, Giovanni Engelbert, the creative director, wants the space to reflect this 128-year-old heritage. So how do they go about doing that? Well, they of course, they have their beautiful crystals, but they also, what I did not know until I started reading up on it a bit, is that they own Rosenthal China. So they have a lounge with this vintage, this beautiful heritage China brand, uh, porcelain uh, Rosenthal, and you can have a cup of coffee and you can hang out there. So there's sort of a, a old and new mix going on that you're in this modern space, but you're having, you know, the heritage pieces, whether it's porcelain or crystal. In the more modern way, you can go upstairs to the second floor, and that's where they have their special lab-grown diamonds, which they call created diamonds. And so they've moved into the diamond world, which is very interesting because, you know, before it was crystals, which were kind of like the poor man's diamonds, and now they're getting into the big, the real game. How much, uh, how are New Yorkers going to take to this? Oh, I think they're going to love it, but I, I suspect it's mostly for tourists because when you walk down Fifth Avenue now, the people, the New Yorkers on Fifth Avenue are on their way to someplace, like their office, lunch at a restaurant in Rockefeller Center, you know, Carnegie Hall at the theater. They're, they're, Fifth Avenue is a thoroughfare for them. It's not a shopping street. The shopping street part is for all the tourists who come through town. Um, Dana, we're just looking at this idea of uh, heritage and and in New York as a location of revamped her- heritage brands. And I think we can just think of Tiffany in that way. I mean, how where does New York stand, stand in the sort of the wider context of being a place where you go to, to update yourself? 
Well, if you live from outside of New York, that's definitely where you go. As it was, you know, even 100 years ago. I, I love watching old movies and reading in old books. Oh, let's go to New York from Philadelphia and find you a new dress. You know, because they're, what, we had in, what they had in Philadelphia or Washington or Boston just wasn't, you know, the new plus ultra. It wasn't the, the most fabulous thing. So you went shopping in New York. And, I, and that's what you know, Fifth Avenue and even Madison Avenue still try to do. And when you're in town, you want to go shopping, you make you go on shopping trips from around America when you want to have a great experience. And, uh, you know, and especially in the era of online shopping, New York really does take it to the next level. Dana Thomas, thank you as ever for joining us on the line from Paris. You're listening to The Globalist and that's all we have time for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and thanks to our producers too, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Sell and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Nima Akwe and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 